Because understanding great literature is better than trying to read and understand yet another business book, on the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast, we commit to reading, dissecting, and analyzing the great books of the Western canon. You know, those books, from Jane Austen to Shakespeare, and everything else in between, that you might have fallen asleep trying to read in high school. We do this for our listeners, the owner, the entrepreneur, the manager, or the civic leader who doesn't have the time to read, dissect, analyze, and leverage insights from literature to execute leadership best practices in the confusing and chaotic postmodern world we all now inhabit. Welcome to the rescuing of Western civilization at the intersection of literature and leadership. Welcome to the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books Podcast. Hello, my name is Hassan Sorrells, and this is the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books Podcast with our book today, the penultimate Christmas classic, just in time for the holidays. And you'll be able to see it as I hold up the cover on the YouTube of this, which will probably be coming out after the Christmas holidays. I mean, let's be real here. A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And of course, we're welcoming back to the podcast, Tom Libby. Hello, Tom. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic, Kason. Thank you very much. And uh, I'm awesome having uh, coming back. I'm, I'm super excited to be back. Yeah, it's going to be great. We're going to normally I don't have good timing when it comes to things like this. So <laughs> normally I'm terrible. Um, I'm usually scrambling, kind of like most people scramble five days before the holidays. I'm kind of scrambling to put together a podcast episode before uh, the Christmas holidays or before any major holiday. But fortunately, I was on it this year. And so we will be talking about A Christmas Carol. Um, a book that has, as I was saying before we hit the record button, a book that has stood the test of time um, in many, many ways, and that has set the foundation for what we think of as Christmas, when we think of that in our heads, whether we are Christian or not, kind of an irrelevancy, right? It's, it's actually gone beyond religion, and now we're into the space of myth, and we're into the space of something that everybody can appreciate increasingly uh, from a global perspective. So our concepts of tinsel, uh, sleigh bells ringing, the food, and of course, <laughs> the spirits of Christmas. And we'll talk about the spirits of Christmas in just a minute. And the tensions between capitalism and, well, morality are all evidenced in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. So we're going to start off a little bit um, talking about Charles Dickens and A Christmas Carol. And so I'm going to read from A Christmas Carol. Now, the version that I have is the Bantam classic version. I always usually talk about this usually later on the podcast, but I'll bring it up early now just to get it out of the way. This is the Bantam classic version of A Christmas Carol. So it has um, the original story in it. Uh, talks a little bit about the reception that uh, Dickens's classic uh, had back in the Victorian era. Um, and then we also get into the literary life, a, a brief bio, biographical sketch of Charles Dickens. And so I want to introduce you to him in case you have not met him. The new office boy who reported for work in the London law firm of Ellis and Blackmore one May Day in 1827 was small for his 15 years, but he seemed sure enough of himself. He arrived neatly dressed, handsome of face, and sporting a big black eye, which he got on the way to the office after he had hit a bigger boy who had knocked off his cap. 
The boy in this incident was Charles Dickens, destined to become a giant in literature. Dickens was born in Landport, about 75 miles southwest of London, on February 7th, 1812, to John and Elizabeth Dickens. The years with his parents between then and his new job at Ellis and Blackmore were important in shaping the ideas of Dickens, the writer. Dickens' father was a clerk in a naval pay office, but pretended to a place in society he could not rightfully claim. This pretension led him to spend more than he earned and plunged him into financial troubles, which affected the life of his firstborn son. He piled up debts, which required him to pawn the family possessions and to move his household from one place to another, each time to a neighborhood less desirable than the last. He found it impossible or inconvenient to keep Charles in school and made arrangements for his son to go to work. Not an unusual fate for a 12-year-old boy in the 1820s in a blacking warehouse. Charles earned six shillings a week pasting labels on bottles of boot polish from eight o'clock in the morning until eight at night with an hour off for lunch and half an hour for tea in the afternoon, Monday through Saturday. The boy hated this job because he thought he should be in school and also because he found his work humiliating. Evidently, some of his father's desire to better his social status rubbed off on his son. Charles was often seized with fits of fever and spasms during his months at the blacking warehouse, a malady that afflicted him throughout his childhood whenever things were going badly. By the way, pause. We would call this psychosomatic these days. <laughs> his humiliation was deepened when his father, along with the rest of the family, was sent to debtor's prison. His deliverance came when his grandmother died and left enough money for his father to obtain a release from prison. Finally, his father took him out of the warehouse, but not without protest from his mother, and sent him back to school. The whole term of working could not have been six months long, yet the experience left a mark on Dickens, which a life of immense popularity and great wealth could not erase. He could not bring himself to tell either his wife or his children about it or his family's term in prison, and his later writings bear witness to his interest in the economic and social factors which made such childhood agony possible. Charles spent two and a half years at Wellington House Academy, a private boys' school, where he immersed people with his quick wit, his habit of laughing boisterously for no apparent reason, and his interest in staging plays in the toy theaters. He was happy in school, but it was inevitable that his schooling should come to an end when his father's financial condition took the now familiar turn for the worse. So Charles found himself at the end of his formal schooling and in the law firm of Ellis and Blackmore as an office boy. There, he found his work dull and his mind turned towards journalism. Learning that he could not succeed in newspaper reporting without a knowledge of shorthand, he set to work to learn and became very proficient. <clears throat> Dickens did so well at it that he became a reporter in Parliament, distinguishing himself by the speed and accuracy of his reporting, the long debates, although he had by then barely turned 20. Such success led him to being given editorial responsibilities on the newspaper, Mirror of Parliament, which reported parliamentary proceedings. In his reporting job, he observed closely the people about him, something he had been doing since he was a small boy, and many of those people were destined to appear as characters in the novels yet unwritten. Dickens' career in writing began with the publication of a fictional sketch in the December 1833 issue of the Monthly Magazine. This led to sketches by boys and a lifetime of creative outbursts, which only a genius and a man of inexhaustible energy could produce. The serial story in newspaper and magazine was then in high fashion, and Dickens found it a splendid outlet for his flowing descriptions of scene and character, which were always amazingly accurate reports of the author's sharp observations. The Pickwick Papers was his first novel, and it appeared in 20 monthly installments. Although Dickens' literary career was surging forward, he took on these new writing jobs but continued his newspaper work. Dickens still found time to fall in love and marry Catherine Hogarth. She was not his first love, nor his last. Indeed, women were a part of Dickens' exhilarating and expansive personality, causing him joy and trouble through much of his life. For example, he began married life in 1836, 
with a young, beautiful, and admiring sister-in-law, Mary Hogarth, sharing his household. After 20 years, two years of marriage, and 10, 10 children, Charles and Catherine Dickens separated, no small scandal in Victorian England. Georgina Hogarth, another sister-in-law, continued to live in the author's home caring for the children. In addition, Dickens' name was linked with the names of many women during his life. A man of prodigious energies, his life was filled with writing, traveling. He sailed to America twice, a considerable journey in those times, acting and giving public readings of his works. The pace he set for himself was grueling in the extreme, and in the early months of 1870, he suffered a stroke, which partially paralyzed his left side. On the 9th of June of that year, he died, leaving the world richer for his books, where he had portrayed the mankind he loved and knew. Thus we have, as the setting, the background for A Christmas Carol, the literary life of Charles Dickens, probably the most popular writer of the Victorian era. Um, <clears throat> I was just saying to Tom before we came on, um, the guy would probably have been one of those authors with a podcast, and he probably would have loved Twitter, actually. Uh, he would have loved it insanely. Jane Austen would have loved Facebook. We mentioned this in an earlier episode, but uh, but Twitter, my boy Dickens would have been on Twitter, and he'd have been tweeting all day. <laughs> um being born when he was in the 19th century, he witnessed the transition of humanity in England um, from farms and factories and villages to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. I mean, when you're getting paid $8, uh, or not $8, you're working eight, uh, 12 hours a day and getting paid a few bucks to put labels on, on bottles of boot black and boot polish, you're at the beginning of something. Um, and the Industrial Revolution would bring more prosperity to more people than anything else that human beings had done up to that point. But it would also bring a lot of pathologies with it. It would also bring a lot of challenges with it, many of which we are still working through today. As a matter of fact, infamously enough, Karl Marx said that uh, about Dickinson's writing in a book called Hard Times, uh, which appeared, I believe, right after Pickwick Papers and in between that one and Oliver Twist, he said about Hard Times, and I quote directly, that book converted more people than Das Kapital did from capitalism to more communistic ideas. One of the things you have to know about Dickens, and we moderns underestimate the power of religion, we really do, because every man can pick his own God now, that's the world we live in today. But back then, you didn't have a lot of options. You picked one or you didn't pick any. And that was it. Those are your two options. And Dickens was a Christian and he was a Christian social critic. And he understood instinctively what that meant. Does this mean he was religious or where his soul sat with the Almighty? I don't get into all of that. All I know is he wrote from particular belief and a particular set of perspectives that were, yes, very prominent in the age, but he also battled with those throughout his writings and, of course, battled with those throughout his actual practical life, as you can see with his many loves and his many dalliances. Now, he used his talent for writing books and for observation and for having that prodigious energy that was mentioned there at the beginning uh, to publish uh, one book, which we are going to talk about today, A Christmas Carol. It was published in 1843, and it has never been out of print. We are in the 179th year, as of this recording, 
of A Christmas Carol, and I anticipate we will get right to 200 years, and we'll go right past that. Uh, A Christmas Carol set the tone in the West and increasingly around the world for what Christmas actually means, whether you're secular or not, whether you bow at the altar of commercialization, or whether you're a person who really believes that it's all about Jesus. Either way, right, you have this image in your head of what Christmas is, (laughs) and that image was created by Charles Dickens, just observing what he was seeing and writing it down. And so, after all of that, I'm going to open up the door to Tom a little bit here because he's been wow. listening to me patiently. So, <laughs> so what are your memories? Let's start this. What do you What do you know about the Christmas Carol and its core themes? And by the way, this has been turned into movies, theater shows, television. My so, God, it's been everywhere. So yeah, that was actually going to be my first statement. Which one of the things I find fascinating, the the, the most probably the most fascinating thing that I found about the book was, no matter what media we've come out with the book has some sort of interpretation based on that media meaning it was on it was on broadway or or some sort of stage version and then movies came out it came on or radio came out they did it on the radio the mm-hmm. movies came out they did it on the movies now we have all this technology you know uh, you know th- available to us and it's been interpreted by just about everybody from from you know network televisions to disney yes like disney has a version of it with like I think it. I think that that is probably the one of the most fascinating things to me. That it's such a simplistic. And if you and I, I don't mean to downplay Dickens mm-hmm. by any stretch of the imagination, but the theme is simplistic, right? Like, oh, yeah. You think of like what the theory is or what the theme is here. It's it's capitalism over over your family or you know wealth over relationships or however you want to word it. But that that theme. And by the way, that theme has still not changed. Right. I also find it fascinating that. 200 years later, we're still internally fighting the same monsters. Like, and I, I don't know if that's now there, there's a slight, um, there's a slight sect of people that will blame Dickens for that, not oh, get yeah. credit for it. Right. So right. it's like, so, cause he, there, there's a certain people, certain sense of people that, that really think that the, the ideas and concepts and themes of Christmas have gone right down the toilet and that it's a hundred percent capitalistic now. And right. it's, it's, if, if you think, and even the bigger companies and, and I'm not going to name names, but even, but you'll know what I'm talking about as soon as I say it, even the big companies that are 100% trying to sell you something mm-hmm. are using the drips and memes of like, it's about family. It's about relationships, but come buy this product because we want you to buy it. Like, that's right. So <laughs> it's like, they're even, they're even coveting this, this battle, internal battle that we use. So anyway. I think the book is fascinating. I think it's been amazing to see the, the journey that it's been on, um, you know, and just through historic value, because obviously I wasn't alive in 1843, but, you know, when, and I, nor you, but, but, but as students of history, the two of us have been able to go back and see how this simplistic idea has morphed into something that is just bigger than itself. It really is just bigger than itself at this point. It has not only has it morphed into something that is bigger than itself, but it's also created, and I loved how you mentioned core themes. It's created this, this tension that probably didn't exist before and could only have existed under industrialization between, like you said, wealth and relationship. And Dickens was the first one to sort of see that at the beginning of the industrial revolution and really hit on something human inside of that. And of course, what makes it timeless is 
it doesn't matter what the what the externalities of the people are when it comes to a celebration of relationship over something else you're going to have that tension right uh people talk about the christmas spirit all the time well the christmas spirit is more than just about giving and gratitude it's about uh, which I think Thanksgiving is much more about that, but it's also, but it's about this idea of how do you resolve that tension between the material and the spiritual, you know, to, to put it quite frankly. Well, and, and the other thing, like you mentioned a few minutes ago, and, and I, again, find it fascinating how he used, you, you mentioned his, his faith, right? His religion, mm-hmm. his, how, and a lot of his writings come from that, but he doesn't put it in your face. I think that part is also extraordinarily brilliant. Like coming from somebody who was raised Catholic and, and it, it was like, not just put in my face, it was like shoved down your throat, right? Like, right. Yeah. no. so, uh, so it, it was, you know, but he did it so subtly, right? There was, there are, there are little nuances to this that make you understand and realize that, that he's Christian. You, you, right. you can see it in there, but it's not so blatantly obvious that you feel like it's a religious story. Exactly. It, it exactly. Really, he, it's 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 really brilliant how he balances that that pen or pencil. Well, and it's not and it, it's not long. It's only an eighty-seven page story. Yeah. Like you can bang yeah. through this in an afternoon, you right, know? Right. And you can get the and, and so it's that economy of language. It's the economy of of image, but it's also this idea that something exists. And this is the amazing thing about it. And by the way, I will be honest, like before this podcast, I had probably not actually gone, I no, not probably, I had not actually read the book, the, the story, The Christmas Carol, right? Because why do I need to read that? Like, I I mean, I see the movie, like, I, I got it. Like, you know. You've seen the 18 movies. I've seen the 18 movies. I got it. Like, I'm... I'm sad. I don't, the six I don't need any help. In the 27 television specials. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I personally like the Jim, the, the, not Jim Gary, the, um, the Bill Murray version, Scrooge oh, from like 1980 something, which yeah. I can't show my kids because it's a PG 13 movie from the 80s, which is actually an R rated movie. But like, I, because I'm, and I'm a huge Bill Murray guy. So like him, you know, kind of flopping around as Ebenezer Scrooge in, as a media mogul is just kind of amazing to me. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Um, and I'm waiting for the AI version, the open chat GPT version, <laughs> version, of, version <laughs> of the Christmas Carol, because even the robots are going to want to wrap their arms around this i I suspect even the robots are going to want this one um but in reading it and actually going back and looking at the source material which is what we do on this podcast for leaders in looking at the source material and going okay what can we pull out of this for leaders what do they have to understand right um you realize just how brilliant something some brilliant and influential something small can be and just how much it can tip over a whole bunch of other different kinds of concepts um, in your head and make them easy for you to understand in a really meaningful way. And, and, and Dickens, that was Dickens's talent. I mean, you know, you, you, the guy would have been a lion regardless of whatever he would have been born in. That talent was going to come out. There are just some people that you realize you could pick up and move throughout the eons of history and they would be successful regardless of where they were. Right. And I think he's one of them. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, back to the book. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about this, uh, this guy, this, uh, this fellow. We're going to talk a little bit about Scrooge. We're going to meet Ebenezer Scrooge, right? We're going to get into the Christmas Carol. Let's, 
go meet this fellow who's been portrayed by um well by all kinds of different actors again my my personal favorite is bill murray um you may have a different you may have a different favorite um i do know again there's been animated versions of this disney uh the disney version of a christmas carol i mean my gosh like it's it's been all over the place um so back to a christmas carol The same face, the very same. Marley and his pigtail. This is Jacob Marley, his former partner, now passed. Usual waistcoat, tights and boots, the tassels on the ladder bristling like his pigtail and his coat skirts and the hair upon his head. The chain he drew was clasped about his middle. This is the ghost of Marley visiting Scrooge. It was long and wound about him like a tail and it was made, for Scrooge observed it closely of cash boxes, keys, padlocks, ledgers, deeds, and heavy purses wrought in steel. His body was transparent so that Scrooge observing him and looking through his waistcoat could see the two buttons on his coat behind. Scrooge had often heard it said that Marley had no bowels, but he had never believed it until now. (laughs) Nor did he believe it even now, though he looked uh, though he looked the phantom through and through and saw it standing before him, though he felt the chilling influence of its death cold eyes and marked the very texture of the folded kerchief bound about its hidden chin, which wrapper he had not observed before, he was still incredulous and he fought against his senses. How now, said Scrooge, caustic and cold as ever. What do you want with me? Much, Marley's voice. No doubt about it. Who were you? Ask me who I was. Who were you then, said Scrooge, raising his voice. You're particular for a shade. He was going to say to a shade, but substituted this as more appropriate. In life, I was your partner, Jacob Marley. Can you you sit down, asked Scrooge, looking doubtfully at him. I can. Do it then. Scrooge asked the question because he didn't know whether a ghost so transparent might find himself in a condition to take a chair and felt that in the event of its being impossible, it might involve the necessity of an embarrassing explanation. But the ghost sat down on the opposite side of the fireplace as if he were quite used to it. You don't believe in me, observed the ghost. I don't, said Scrooge. What evidence would you have of my reality beyond that of your senses? I don't know, said Scrooge. Why do you doubt your senses? Because, said Scrooge, a little thing affects them. A slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheats. You may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of an underdone potato. There's more of gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are. Scrooge was not much in the habit of cracking jokes, nor did he feel in his heart by any means waggish. Then the truth is that he tried to be smart as a means of distracting his own attention and keeping down his terror for the specter's voice disturbed the very marrow in his bones. To sit staring at those fixed glazed eyes in silence for a moment would play, Scrooge felt the very deuce with him. There was something very awful, too, in the specters being provided with an infernal atmosphere of its own. Scrooge could not feel it himself, but this was clearly the case, for though the ghost sat perfectly motionless, its hair and skirts and tassels were still agitated as by the hot vapor from an oven. You see this toothpick? said Scrooge, returning quickly to the charge for the reason just assigned and wishing, though it were for only for a second to divert the vision's stony gaze from himself. I do, replied the ghost. You are not looking at it, said Scrooge. But I see it, said the ghost, notwithstanding. Well, returned Scrooge, I have to but swallow this and be for the rest of my days persecuted by a legion of goblins, all of my own creation. Humbug, I tell you, humbug. 
At this, the spirit raised a frightful cry and shook its chain with such a dismal and appalling noise that Scrooge held on tight to his chair to save himself from falling in a swoon. But how much greater was his horror when the phantom, taking off the bandage round its head as if it were too warm to wear it indoors, its lower jaw dropped down on its breast. Scrooge fell upon his knees and clasped his hands before his face. Mercy, he said, dreadful apparition, why do you trouble me? Man of the worldly mind, replied the ghost, do you believe in me or not? I do, said Scrooge, I must, but why do spirits walk the earth? Why do they come to me? It is required of every man, the ghost returned, that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men and travel far and wide. And if that spirit goes forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. It is doomed to wander through the world. Oh, woe is me and witness what it cannot share, but might have shared on earth and turned to happiness. Again, the specter raised a cry and shook its chain and wrung, wrung its shadowy hands. Scrooge stands in as an avatar, right? As Tom was just saying, even in our time for greed and avarice and vanity and selfishness and a callow lack of understanding, that little piece that we read there is preceded by the setup, basically, of Scrooge as this guy who won't give Bob Cratchit, his overworked clerk, a day off, uh, who rejects his nephew's um, attempts to invite him to a Christmas meal and kicks out two people who are interested in uh, having him contribute to charity um, for people who are going to workhouses or debtor prisons and basically says, I pay a lot of taxes. Uh, those services should be enough for those folks. <laughs> So it turns out, as Tom was saying before, and again, not to steal Tom's thunder, but it is something that you can observe yourself. seems like not, not a lot has changed in the last yeah. almost, 79 years. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is remarkable about Scrooge in this little story is that Dickens wrote him as a critique of capitalism from the left, the political left in spite of the fact that he is redeemed by engaging in the same capitalism that Dickens just critiqued from the right at the end of the story. Yeah. It's this neat little turn that makes this story political and apolitical all at the same time. The other dynamic about it, and this is why I wanted to introduce you to Jacob Marling, is that Dickens lived at a time during the 19th century when spiritualism ran amok among Victorians. And spiritualism should not be confused with Christianity. Spiritualism is the idea um, that you could raise ghosts from the dead and that you could speak to people who had already died, right? Um, now, most of this was scams. Um, the magician and illusionist uh, of the 19th century of the Victorian era what is his name? I'm going to remember his name in just a minute as I continue to talk, but a uh, very famous magician and, and illusionist of the 19th century basically claimed he made a bet that if anybody could raise him from the dead, uh, they would win a bunch of money. And all of you out there's listeners are going to remind me of who this person is. Uh, and he was never raised from the dead and nobody ever won the bet, right? Because spiritualism was, to paraphrase from Scrooge, humbug, right? 
And yet, as a literary device, it works because spiritualism wasn't really about the raising of the dead. That's not really what it was about. It was about condemnation. It was about judgment. It was about, well, it was about... <laughs> I, I read, I read being, somewhere something found by your measure and being found wanting, right? Yeah, yeah well, I was gonna say, I read, I read somewhere too that that exact, uh, that exact piece that you're talking about right now was, was the that strive for immortality, right? Mm -hmm. it, it had more to do with the fact that, that you're gonna, you know, once you pass on to the next life, that you can remain in this life. So there was like an immortality feature to it. So there was this constant barragement of, it's real. It's real. It's real. Let me prove it. Let me prove it. Let me prove it. So right. it was, you know, and, and, and I guess I, I, I never really put that two and two together that Dickens was like, ah, I got this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I, well, and that's the, that's the great thing because he was, he was sitting around um, watching all of this happen in real time. Um, he was also in the space of, and, and the book was published in, in 1843. He was in the space of having conversations or conversations were beginning to be remaining to be had in the public on a scientific level, on a very material level, um, because Darwin would, be, would publish on the origin of the species in 1859, and that would turn Victorian society and the rest of society for the for on, on to now inside out, basically. Um, once Darwin published his theory of evolution, that was it. We we're off to the races and you know, you combine that with Nietzschean existentialism, which we talk a lot about on this podcast. And then you have man's meaning crisis in the West anyway, you know, just full on, right? Because if we evolved from apes, if we came from nothing, Big Bang Theory, um, if there is no God in the machine, then what is the meaning, right? Dickens was having those, was seeing those things happen in the zeitgeist in 1843. And when Origin of the Species came along, people forget he died in 1870. He had 20 years of those conversations happening around him. And so he was kind of giving a preview of coming attractions, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, what can leaders learn from Ebenezer Scrooge? <laughs> it's so weird that you were thinking, like, that you just, like, you just kind of, like, went there, right? Like, I, I, just, I went right there. So, because so, I was, you know, the funny part was when, when, you, when you had sent me the information about this podcast, that was really my first thought, like before I even read the information and all the, all the outline and all that stuff. And I was like, wait a minute, this is a leadership podcast. What in this God's green earth am I supposed to take uh, from leadership from Ebenezer Cruz? Well, you know what? I figured something out. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Because there's got to be something. <laughs> there has to be something, right? And I think one of the things from a leadership perspective, I, I thought was an interesting concept that, again, if you watch this movie or read this book from, from that perspective, I think the, the, the message here is crystal clear that it's never too late to become a good leader, right? Like, so it's never too late to change your world around. It's never too late to fix the wrongs that you, you could be the world's worst CEO and treat your people like crap. I'm, I, I can almost promise you that, that if you spun it a complete 180 for the next 10 years, that's what people are going to remember about you, right? So and I'm sure you've heard the stories too, Hazan. I've heard stories of very popular, um, big name leaders. And again, I'm not going to throw names out there because I don't want to. I don't want to cause any kind of like debate or problem with your audience. But there's been some very big leaders out there in the past, in our past especially, coming up in the '90s and the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. That prior to that, they were considered terrible. 
And then all of a sudden the tech boom happens and they just really flipped the script on their own story, right? Mm -hmm. And they were able to to become some of the all-time, what we would consider greats of leadership. And we still quote them today. Mm -hmm. But if you look at their early careers, they were not very good people. And they were not very... uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Scrupulous. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, like, so like they, they did a lot of wrongs and they treated people a lot of really poorly, but they they caught it. They caught it at a point in their life where it was not too late to turn it around and then and then in in, in turn be considered one of the better leaders of the 20th century, 21st, early 21st century. So yeah. I think for me, that jumped out at me when I when I was again looking at the, the information you sent and the outline and all this stuff. And yeah. I'm going, from leadership what does this teach me about leadership and 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 all of it, then it turns into then it turns into what is leadership other than you as a human being treating other people like human beings amongst every, all of the the techniques and the whatever, yep. right yep. It's, it's so if if you're looking at this story and you're going that's exactly what it is he didn't treat people as if they were human beings until he realized that he needs to do that. And then once he did, his life changed for the better. That's right. right. Yes. So again, I, I go back to like that to me, that was the foundational piece of it. I'm sure there are other minor things here and there. And, and if you think of like um, there's some observational skills that you can take out of it. If you think mm-hmm. about um, when he's looking back in the past retrospective, should, you should always be gauging your past to present your future, mm-hmm. things like that. I mean, sure, there's, I'm sure there's tiny little nuances there that if you are a very analytical person, you could take out a hundred of those things out of that, right? Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the, the uh, predictability of the future, you know, the ghost of future, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, the ghost of Christmas future, sorry. But the ghost of, it, and then, so you start thinking uh, from, uh, uh, I, I, I'm a firm believer in Stephen Covey, right? So you look mm-hmm. at Stephen yeah. Covey's, um, you know, work, you know, start with the end in mind. Yeah. So if you're if you're trying to become predictive and what you're you're looking for from a leadership perspective, well then you got to work backwards. Start right. with what you're looking for, what you're shooting for, what you want to be judged by, and then go backwards from that. So if you're looking at the ghost of Christmas future, going that's what I really want, yeah, or that's what's a possibility, then what do I have to do right now in order to make that possibility a reality? Yeah. So I do think there are a lot. I, there was way more leadership stuff in there than I expected when I. When you first sent me the, book, the information, I was like, this is a Christmas story. What are we doing here? But the more I dissected it, the more I found a lot of, uh, there's a lot of little nuances in there. Right. And that's, I am a firm believer that this is, this, and this is why we do literature. I say this repeatedly on this podcast and I'll say it again. This is why we do literature because if you wrote the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, and his experiences, if Jack Welch, I'll name a name, if Jack Welch wrote, and, and I know it's not the name you're thinking of, but I'll, I'll name a name. If Jack Welch wrote <clears throat> this kind of story, no one would believe it. Yeah. <laughs> no one would believe that, that number one, no one would believe that a ghost visited you and, and shook you out of your, you know, that you were shook as, as, as the kids say these days. <laughs> no, one, no, 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 no one would believe that. That's number one. But even if they did believe that, the level to which Scrooge shifts is, can only happen in literature, right? Because the writer has the ability to push the character wherever it is he wants the character well, to go. That, but, that quickly, that quickly maybe. 
Yeah. I do think that shift can happen, but it can't okay. happen as quickly as it does in literature. Right, 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 right. You know, he had 12, well, and the book is, by the way, the book is the book is squishy with the time frame, right? So, you know, the the the, the chimes bell for what is it, uh, twelve o'clock, and the chimes bell for one o'clock, um, but then he doesn't hear the chimes again, right? Um, or, you know, he's traveling through time and through space, and of course, because it's literature, you can do that, um, and it comes off as this very. <laughs> I can easily see a modern version of the Christmas story or the modern version of Christmas Carol with um, not to be confused with the Christmas story with Ralphie and all of that. It's not confusing. <laughs> just watched that the other day with my kids. <laughs> they were like, why is this so popular? I, was like, well, I had to explain to them about the 1940s and, you know, the baby boomers and like childhood underneath, like not having as much as we have now. And they, they still kind of sort of rolled their eyes, like, whatever dad, it's fine. Okay. All right. It's fine. Um, but Ralphie is a penultimate character. Interesting enough. And we will cover a Christmas story maybe next Christmas. Yeah, <laughs> there, are things you can, there are things you can learn from Ralphie actually, interestingly enough, <laughs> but, um, but leadership is everywhere. And that, that, that hero's journey, Again, without the psychology, right? Um, you know, um, Dickens is writing at a time before Jungian psychology. He's writing at a time before Freud. He's writing at a time before all of this stuff that we now frame a Christmas Carol or any other book around. Right. But it was a hero's journey, except <laughs> Scrooge is the villain, <laughs> right? Scrooge is the unlikable, terrible villain. As a matter of fact, when he goes, well, when the ghosts go and show him what other people are saying about him, none of it is positive. No, they're all crapping on the guy. And so, um, so yeah, it's, you're right. It is, it is this idea that, that a leader can change, but there, there, there has to be, and, and I think this is a very enlightenment idea that Dickens is holding on to. There has to be a, a push or a force from the outside that yeah, makes that happen, you know, or, or, or in, in the case of leadership in, in organizational leadership from the inside, right. It has to be right. a force from outside of yourself, but you're right. In, in like anonymous uh, anonymous surveys that are truly anonymous, by the way, right. so anonymous surveys, things like that, uh, you know, that stuff, when you really get to the heart of what your employees are thinking, only that's the only way you're going to get to that paradigm shift. You're not going to have an epiphany all by your lonesome when you're sitting in your bed on Christmas Eve, right? It's not, that's just not going to happen. It was but, one piece of coal and some yeah. port wine that you ripped off from some of your <laughs> <Exactly>. clerk. <laughs> but, but over the course of time and really striving for understanding of the mentality of your workforce and of the mentality of your, even of your customer base or however you want to look at it, that you can start to, to, to shift that paradigm, right? Like you yeah. can, it just, you have first of all though here's the biggest problem and what again what's something that we can learn from from this story is willingness right are you really willing are you really willing to listen are you really willing to change because if you're not then it's all a moot point you can take all the surveys you want you can take all the understanding you get all the understanding from your your clients your customers your friends your family none of that matters mm -hmm. if you're if you don't have the willingness to listen to learn to change exactly it's, it's exactly it's, and, and some people say they are or think they are, and they're really not. They're really not. <laughs> yes. Well, well, and that gets to that gets this to this idea of, and I just did a whole, I just did a whole class this year, um, the last half of this year on ethics. And 
we, you know, we separate ethics from morality for a whole variety of different reasons that we, we, we don't have the space to get into on the podcast, on this episode anyway, of the podcast right now. We'll explore those, some of those next year with some of the books that we're reading, because this is a fascinating separation that leaders need to pay attention to. Uh, I will also say at the, at the outset, I don't think you can uncouple ethics from morality, but that's my own bias. Let's put that aside for just a second. In looking at how you care about people and in looking at what those forces are from the outside, um, well, how does a leader become ethical and paying attention and going in the right direction, right? Dickens has some thoughts for us. So back to the book, back to the story, A Christmas Carol. So um, the ghost of Christmas present grabs a hold of um, of, uh, of Scrooge here and starts taking him around, starts showing him some things, right? And uh, the ghost of Christmas present uh, in this part of the story uh, really does set the tone for, again, what we think of as Christmas, holly, mistletoe, um, food, people getting together, all this. And then, and then, and then, by the way, these ghosts communicate with, with, with Scrooge. So there's communication that goes back to that spiritualism idea. And that idea, I loved how you brought this up about immortality, right? Uh, going back and forth across the veil and being able to gain knowledge. So we picked this up at this point in the book, but soon the steeples called good people all to church and chapel and away they came flocking through the streets in their best clothes with their gayest faces. And at the same time, there emerged from scores of by streets, lanes, and nameless turnings, innumerable people carrying their dinners uh, to the baker's shops. The sight of these poor revelers appeared to interest the spirit very much, for he stood with Scrooge beside him in a baker's doorway and taking off the covers as their bearers passed, sprinkled incense on their dinners from his torch. And it was very uncommon. It was a very uncommon kind of torch for once or twice when he when they were angry, when there were angry words between some dinner carriers who had jostled each other, he shed a few drops of water on them and their good humor was restored directly. For they said it was a shame to quarrel upon Christmas day. And so it was, God love it, so it was. In time, the bell ceased and the bakers were shut up and yet there was a genial shadowing forth of these uh, dinners and the progress of their cooking in the thawed blotch of wet above each baker's oven where the pavement smoked as if its stones were cooking too. Is there a peculiar flavor in what you sprinkle from your torch? Asked Scrooge. There is. My own. Would it apply to any kind of dinner on this day? Asked Scrooge. <clears throat> to any kindly given. To a poor one most. Why to a poor one most? Asked Scrooge. Because it needs it most. Spirit, said Scrooge after a moment's thought. I wonder, you, of all the beings in the many worlds about us, should desire to cramp these people's opportunities of innocent enjoyment. I, cried the spirit, you would deprive them of their means of dining every seventh day, often the only day on which they can be said to dine at all, said Scrooge, wouldn't you? I, cried the spirit, you seek to close these places on the seventh day, said Scrooge, and it comes to the same thing. I seek, exclaimed the spirit, forgive me if I am wrong, it has been done in your name, or at least that of your family, said Scrooge. There are some upon this earth of yours, returned the spirit, who lay claim to know us and who do their deeds of passion, pride, ill will, hatred, envy, bigotry, and selfishness in our name, who are as strange to us all and all our kith and kin as if they had never lived. Remember that and charge their doings on themselves, 
not on us. Scrooge promised that he would, and they went on, invisible, as they had been before in the suburbs of the town. <clears throat> it was a remarkable quality of the ghost, which Scrooge had observed at the Baker's, that notwithstanding his gigantic size, he could accommodate himself to any place with ease, and that he stood beneath a low roof quite as gracefully and uh, like a supernatural creature as it was possible he could have done in any lofty hall. And perhaps it was the pleasure the good spirit had in showing off this power of his, or else it was his own kind, generous, hearty nature and his sympathy with all poor men that led him straight to Scrooge's clerk. For there he went and took Scrooge with him, holding his robe and on the threshold of the door, the spirit smiled and stopped to bless Bob Cratchit's dwelling with the sprinkling of his torch. Think of that. Bob had but 15 Bob a week himself. He pocketed on Saturdays but 15 copies of his Christian name, and yet the ghost of Christmas present blessed his four-roomed house. Then rose up Mrs. Cratchit, Cratchit's wife, dressed out but poorly in a twice-turned gown, but brave in ribbons which are cheap and make a goodly show for sixpence. And she laid the cloth, assisted by Belinda Cratchit, second of her daughters, also brave in ribbons, while Master Peter Cratchit plunged a fork into the saucepan of potatoes, and getting in the corners of his monstrous shirt collar, Bob's private property conferred upon his son and heir honor in of the day unto his mouth rejoiced to find himself so gallantly attired and yearned to show his linen in the fashionable parks. And now two smaller Cratchits, boy and girl came tearing in screaming that outside the bakers, they had smelt the goose and known it for their own and basking in luxurious thoughts of sage and onion. These young Cratchits danced about the table and exalted master Peter Cratchit to the skies while he not proud, although his collars nearly choked him, blew the fire until the slow potatoes bubbled up, knocked loudly at the saucepan lid to be let out and peeled. What has ever gotten into your precious father then, said Mrs. Cratchit, and your brother, Tiny Tim and Martha, weren't as late last Christmas day by a half hour. Here's Martha, mother, said a girl, appearing as she spoke. Here's Martha, mother, cried the two young Cratchits. Hurrah, there's such a goose, Martha. I bless your heart alive, my dear. How late you are, said Mrs. Cratchit, kissing her a dozen times, taking off her shawl and bonnet for her with officious zeal. We'd a deal of work to finish up last night, replied the girl, and had to clear away this morning, mother. Well, never mind so long as you are come, said Mrs. Cratchit. Sit ye down before the fire, my dear, and have a warm Lord bless ye. No, no, there's father coming, cried the two young Cratchits who were everywhere at once. Hide, Martha, hide. So Martha hid herself, and in came little Bob, the father, with at least three feet of comforter, exclusive of the fringe hanging down before him, and his threadbare clothes darned up and brushed to look seasonable, and Tiny Tim upon his shoulder. Alas, for Tiny Tim, he bore a little crutch and had his limbs supported by an iron frame. We get a glimpse into Victorian morality here a little bit um, between the ghosts of Christmas present critiquing Scrooge and setting him sharply uh, a right about vanity and avarice um, and what gets placed on the spirit world and what is the responsibility of human beings. Uh, everything cannot be blamed on God. Some things are just human beings. <laughs> <laughs> and knowing where that line is is really, really hard, <laughs> even in the best of times. The faults of men abound. I can't remember where it comes from, but there's a sign. There's a right. the faults of men abound. Abound. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, many times, you know, we're blaming the devil and we're blaming God. In reality, we should just be blaming ourselves. Sometimes we're just at fault. So, the, you know, most of the time it's your fault. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, 
Dickens writes at the beginning of, and this is something that really struck me in, in reading about the Ghost of Christmas Present in particular, um, not so much future and past, but in the Ghost of Christmas Present, Dickens is writing at this at this space of modern men seeking to separate religion from morality because of everything going on around them and the massive changes they were going through in the Industrial Revolution. And even in that description of their clothes and the food, you are at the beginning of what we in our day would consider extreme poverty. Like we would look at that and we would go, those people are poor. Right. But Dickens is saying they have dignity. And by the way, they were poor back then too. But here's the thing. And this is something that people who been, went through the Great Depression, my grandma went through the Great Depression and she would often talk about this. Everybody was poor. So yeah. nobody knew any different, right? There was no, everybody was broke. You know, any rich people. In our day, we have the same phenomenon. But the challenge we have is we can now see other people's stuff uh, because of social media um, or because of people just showing their highlight reels or whatever. And when people have the opportunity to curate their lives, like if the Cratchits had the opportunity to curate their lives, they would have done so. They wouldn't have been any different than any other human beings. It's not the tool, it's the people, right? Um, and then, and then Scrooge was judged, right? And Scrooge is being judged by the ghost of Christmas present here. Um, and, and in that judgment, he's being judged in moral and religious terms. And there's something about that language that Dickens gets on you. And, and Tom, you picked up on this exactly. And I love it that you mentioned this. He doesn't actually use the biblical, he doesn't use biblical language, but you know, he's writing from a Christian context and you don't, and, and, and it's so subtle that if you know, you know, and if you don't, it doesn't matter. The story still has the impact. And so the question I have is, in the times in which we live now, <laughs> the, year, the year of whoever, <laughs> 2022, um, could this story get written now? Like if we never had had the Christmas Carol, could this story have been written now? Would someone have popped up with this? As as odd as odd as it sounds, I don't think so. I, I and and I don't. I, I go back like if you think about it, the, the mid eighteen hundreds, late eighteen hundreds is really where they started recognizing that eighty twenty rule that eighty yeah. percent that eighty percent of the wealth is controlled by twenty percent of the people. Yeah. And today we talk about the one percenters. Right. Yeah. Well, so that so that that ratio has been so skewed that I don't think the one percenters truly understand and know. I think that gap has gotten so much further apart okay. that the one percenters look at the poverty line as um, as not something in which they can impact for the greater good. But they look at it as something they if they if they keep it as status quo, then they don't change their status. Right. Whereas yeah. back then of the 80 20 rule, though there could have been a solid 50% of those 20 percenters that could have felt like Scrooge and they, they could change the world. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think, I really don't think so. I don't think that we, I don't think now we we've already talked about on, on this particular conversation that, that there's a lot of similarities, right. That, yeah. there, that there's a lot of things that there's a lot of impact similarities. There's a lot of socioeconomic similarities. There's a lot of those similarities. But I do think that, and again, we're, we're talking so hypothetical because the book 
was in fact written and we are you know where we see the impact that the book has had over the last 180 years you know yep. 179 years so if we eliminate that could somebody have at this point said oh i think i can see a storyline here i mean maybe I, maybe but but knowing what we know about how it was written when it was written and why it was written i don't think that we have the same I don't think we have the same dynamics in in social aspects in in even in religious aspects like we talked about earlier he's writing from a christian perspective in today's world you have people abandoning religion like the titanic mm-hmm. yeah. in, in I, just about every organized religion i'm not suggesting it's just a catholic or a christian oh religion, no 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 this is but, yeah but just about every organized religion has people leaving it by the by in droves so I, I think that there's some dynamics that we have today that 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 wouldn't make for the same impact that Dickens had in the in the mid 1800s. Yeah, I, I, I just I, I would think it would be much more difficult to have that kind of impact. Now, can I let me just say there was one and, and we don't have I don't we don't have to talk about it deeply. But did you ever see the movie, uh, The Book of Eli? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I have this weird association with that book of how literature could like, because I think that that would not have been able to be written a hundred years ago. Right. Like, so there's like, there's certain ways in which we can tell these stories that because of what we have available to us and the way that we view the world and as it changes, but the same morale, the same principles apply or the same morals apply. And there's some, there's some things there that I think that could have come out of it if it was written today, but not exactly the same way. I'm not sure it would have had the longevity that it had. So what do you think? Do you think it could have been written today? I, oh, I think the impulse still is there. I think the impulse to, to write it is still there. So, and by the, by, by impulse, I mean, the you made the observation about the one percent versus the ninety nine percent. Okay, I may quibble with that framing, but let's use that for the time being because this is this this sets my idea. Underneath that framing, you're going to get certain types of art and certain types of cultural critiques produced. So, you're going to get Marvel movies with Iron Man. <laughs> That's what you're going to get. And I'm not objecting to Marvel movies. I was a comic book guy for many, many years. You know, I have a geek streak 10 miles wide. I'm not objecting to any of those movies. Well, actually, I object to many of them, but it doesn't matter. Point is, not for this purpose. For the purpose of this thing, I, I, I accept all of them. Wakanda forever. Fine. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> fine. <laughs> we'll quibble later. That's, that's another podcast for another day. <laughs> but, um, but I think you get specific things there. So um, it has long been noted that films are now made for 15-year-old boys, basically. And it's been that way for probably about 25 years now. Yeah. Um, if you are a grown-up with grown responsibilities in your 40s or up, and you're looking for the Woody Allen-type films, and I'm only using Woody Allen because it's a name everybody knows, but the Woody Allen type films that are small and introspective and adult about adult people having adult problems and dealing with them in an adult way. Uh, Ordinary people think of the movie, ordinary people back in the 1980s, right? If you're looking for that movie, couldn't get made today because of the, the construct of the 99% versus the 1%. Yeah. 
that construct produce, produces very specific types of entertainment and very specific types of cultural critiques. Okay. The other thing that I think of is that, and it is a question that I'm, I'm sort of dabbling with a little bit in my head, does morality actually move on? Like, do we actually become morally better over the course of time? Not does the arc, or worse, right? Does the arc of justice, does the arc of morality really bend towards, or the arc of history really bend towards justice? Or are we just delusional, right? And I don't know where, I don't, I don't have a good answer for that. I, I don't know. Um, but I think that's part of this answer, right? With those two things combined together, the arc idea, do we become better morally? And there are certain things that are made during certain times. I am on the fence because I think that impulse is still there. Like my, my immediate gut gut is to like agree with you. That's my immediate gut because that's my 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 knee jerk. Like that's my knee jerk libertarianism. <laughs> Just like yes, <laughs> but I'm I'm going to hesitate a little bit. I'm going to pull back that knee jerk reaction, and I'm going to say I think the impulse is still there but I don't know how strong it is. I don't know how the impulse would show up. So I think you would get the Christmas Carol, but the beats would be different. That's true. But to your point, I think part of it, because it might the same, I, I understand exactly what you're saying, because I'm thinking not to answer your question, because I think it's a much longer conversation than we have time for today, but whether the morals ebb and, or whether the morals grow with us or go backward, I think there's an ebb and flow to it. I really okay. do think that circumstances pending impact the morals of tomorrow right? right so what i mean by that is you know like you could have a, a you know something on the worldwide stage that that you don't like that happens changes the morality of the american people mm -hmm. and then in the very next month the president could do something or say something that goes right back that swings it right back the other way right like so right. We, we are we are a society of ebb and flow in just about everything we do never mind just morals just right. in, in just about everything the so I think to your point, maybe it could be written if the right, if the right, uh, what is the, if the right recipe happened at the right time, so to speak. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, on, but literally a, a year later, then the answer would be no, because of X, Y, and Z that had just, you know what I mean? So I do yeah. think, and I don't think they had that back in the mid 1800s. I think that there was some, that, that slow and steady cog of machinery of society was very like. Uh, it wasn't quite as 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 spiked as we have it today. The ebb and uh, flow the ebb and flow happened over longer time frames than than we have today. So I, I would agree, but I think from their perspective, they thought it was spiky. It may have, yeah, sure. I I I mean, I I don't even I don't know anybody that was born alive back then, but right. My oldest relative, when I that I remember having a conversation with, was born in like 1907. Right. So yeah. It was, okay. So yeah. It was, it was before it was way it was way after that way after and even that, in yeah. talking to them and the, the stuff that they've seen in their lifetime we'll never experience ever again right, right. like yeah so um so there's there's that too right like the stuff yeah. that 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 hockey stick effect that we mm -hmm. had in technology is now no longer it doesn't exist anymore mm -hmm. so i think that also plays a role mm -hmm. in some of that so you know I, the industrial mm -hmm. revolution was a hockey stick in mechanical engineering and then right. technology came around with the hockey stick and technology and, and the technology part of it. But I don't think we're ever going to see that again in either case. I, I don't know. I would push back on that. I think we are. In, I think we're in the middle of a hockey stick. I think we're in the middle. Now, 
let me be let me be clear. I don't know if the hockey stick is going down and going down yeah. into the left or going up into the right. <laughs> I think we are on a hockey stick. <laughs> okay. So I'll I'll quantify with that. Um, but I think I think and I've been saying this to folks about the internet. I think we are at the beginning, all of us right now, who were born between, I would say, 46 or 48 and like 2017, 2018, we're all in the middle of a revolution. We're all at the beginning of like a Gutenbergian level revolution with the internet, not social media, not the applications built on top of it. All that stuff doesn't put all that aside. The fact of being able to have this conversation, publish it to the world, and have people listen to it multiple times over and get something out of it and be able to do that with almost zero cost. <laughs> like, like we, we, we stare flatly at that because like, yeah, okay, well, like, okay, whatever. But like, I think I do, I think of, I think of Gutenberg's printing press, like it was a good and you'll probably all correct me as listeners if I miss this number, but I want to say it was a good 30 years between the time that the printing press got really solid and up off of its legs. And then Martin Luther came along and then the doors just got blown open off of Europe. And then it was 500 years of war after that because everything shifted around, right? I'm not saying that we're on the cusp of 500 years of war, but I am saying we are on a hockey stick and we don't understand... to paraphrase from the trailer for the new movie Oppenheimer, which I'm going to go see next year that's coming out in July. I love Christopher Nolan's films. We don't understand the technology and we won't understand it until we use it. And that's been the same with every freaking technological advantage of course. that we've ever created. We, like, we're, like, we're, we're, me- we're mucking around with this thing we call artificial intelligence right now. So I, we don't understand the only thing, it. The only, thing no I push, the only thing I push back on with that, Hassan, is uh, you're, I, I don't think it, I, I think that you're, I think you're in, interpreting that uh, we could probably talk about this another time, but yeah. I don't think that's a hockey stick though. I, I don't, okay. I think, I think it's still, I think it's still an incline or a decline, yeah. but you're talking about, again, the, the printing press literally took the production of literature and just went whoop right up the, right up the scale. Yeah. Now instead of, and, and I think what you're talking about is foundational change, meaning we have this foundational technology. Okay, we're gonna, got it. We're going to manipulate it as we go to make it better or to make it worse, depending on what, you know, whatever. But but the the in, the, the stuff that we saw in the in the industrial revolution and the tech boom, that true hockey stick effect of impact to society, I don't see. I don't think we're going to see that in in any way, shape, or form, unless it's some sort of. I mean, unless it's the reverse, unless it's a downward hockey stick, that I can foresee some apocalyptic thing that happens there where technology is wiped Mm. off the face of the planet. We don't have it any longer overnight. Yeah. Right. Like some apocalypse like that. Sure. Then you're talking a different kind of hockey stick. Yeah. Yeah. Then it goes down into the left. Yeah. (laughs) But I, I, but I really do. And and I think, I think that, I I think that some of the stuff that you're talking about with uh, you know, in, in this back to the storyline here, back to the story of, of, of the Christmas Carol is I, I think that, that they had that ability to see that hockey stick. He was living that hockey stick through the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. Right. So somebody today, mm-hmm. maybe that book could have been written during the tech boom because that's the same hockey stick effect and seeing the differences in society and morality uh, happening okay, yeah, right in their 
right in front of their eyes. Yeah, I see where but you're going. Okay. On a day-to-day basis like this today, that we're with the, the the stuff that we're seeing on a day-to-day, I don't think I just don't think the book could have been written. I don't okay. think it could have been written on a, on, on today's uh, today's uh, platforms. Okay. All right. Well, let me. Weirdly enough, normally I don't come off as an optimist on my own podcast. Normally, I'm taking the pessimistic spot, but now we're going to flip it. I'm going to come off as optimistic. I'm going to say, go. in 500 years, the hockey stick will go, will go, will will be up and to the right. I'm going to take the optimistic tone. I'm going to have faith in humanity. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going, I'm going to do this because I think, and the reason why I'm going to do this is very simple. Remember I said the impulse is still there. Um, I think the, I think the human impulse towards productive growth that improves humanity. I think that impulse is still there now the strength of it we can argue about that the where that is where that's actually postulated and we're focusing a lot on technology i I think it might be more in in the in the quote-unquote in the real world with real people doing real things i think it might be more in there and solving really hard problems um which is why sort of building in the physical world is is very interesting to me because you're solving you're solving for real things like the power grid i'll I'll use that as an example if you want to solve for the power grid that's a real problem that that, like has to be solved by real human beings and nothing on twitter is going to help you solve the power grid problem right right. you know you actually have to like figure out a different way to pour concrete and a different metal to put in electrical generators and you, you have to figure out real hard problems right that will move humanity forward um and I still think human beings are capable of that. I do. I fundamentally think they are. I'm not disagreeing with you. All I'm saying is the story as it's written now. Yeah. It, it just wouldn't look the same. It just wouldn't look the same. Even if, yeah. Like I said earlier, I, and you can rewind this and listen to it. Like I said earlier, I think they could still get the same messages across. I think yeah. there'd be some underlying, but I don't think they'd be able to do it the same way. Yeah. I don't think that you're going to have this vision of somebody petrified of some spirit visiting them to change <laughs> right. their, their way of thinking. I, yeah. Okay. The way that we know the, the things that we know today, and how driven we are. To, now, if you if you if you come to me and say, uh, you know, my computer comes alive and the AI in my computer starts <laughs> dictating my life again, like if you want to go back to a movie that I think is this movie was so underrated, I, nobody even knows about it. It's a movie called Jexy. Oh, and uh, and it's about it's about yes. basically a guy's phone and the AI ruining his life. And I'm mm-hmm. like, so. If we want to take it from that perspective, but still try to get the underlying morality behind it, I then yeah. sure maybe it could be written, but it would it would look different. Is all I was saying. Yeah, no, I I do agree it would look different. That I absolutely agree with. I yeah. do I do agree that it would look different. But I also think that it, it would need to come from a state. Like I, I still stand by what I said. I still think it need. He was right dead smack in the middle of the industrial revolution and that eighty twenty rule being built. That, yeah. It was right around that time frame that that 80-20 rule, was, I think it was 1896 or something like that was the first mention of the 80-20 rule, if I remember okay. correctly. Okay. So it, it was just shortly after you know, Dickens' death that, mm-hmm. that they started thinking like this. So I still think there has to be something like that that would drive it, is, yeah. is what I was getting at. Okay. All right. No, I, I, I think that's... I think that thesis has weight. Um, absolutely. I think that thesis has weight. It's just, I've never got a chance to be positive on my own podcast. <laughs> I never, I never get a chance to take the positive side, <laughs> but no, no, I, I think, I think you're correct. And I, this is something, again, I'm not, I'm not quite, I got to work this through in my head a little bit more. Cause I think there's something, there's something valid. There's something valid and valuable here. 
Speaking of the social conditions and the Industrial Revolution in the 80-20 rule, let's sort of turn the corner here and read our last portion here of A Christmas Carol. And by the way, I would recommend going out and picking this up and reading it to your kids um, and making it part of whatever your holiday tradition is. Um, because again, it is, it, 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 regardless of how we think about it or how we're talking about it here on the podcast, it is something that I, it is a document, I believe, that is fundamentally foundational um, to uh, understanding who you are as a human being and understanding who you are in a much larger context and, and getting this inside of your kids. It's a really good thing. Also, it, it definitely makes you kind of look inward for sure. It does. Absolutely. Absolutely. So our last piece here from A Christmas Carol. This is the um, this is the phantom. So this is going to be the ghost of Christmas future showing showing uh, Scrooge the next thing. Scrooge and the phantom came to the presence of this man, just as the woman with the heavy bundle slung into the, slunk into the shop, but she had scarcely entered when another woman similarly laden came in too, and she was closely followed by a man in faded black who was no less startled by the sight of them than they had been upon the recognition of each other. After a short period of blank astonishment in which the old man with a pipe had joined them, they all three burst into laughter. Let the charwoman alone to be first, cried she who had entered first. Let the laundress alone to be the second, and let the undertaker's man alone to be third. Look here, old Joe, here's a chance. If we hadn't all three met here without meaning it. You couldn't have met in a better place, said old Joe, removing his pipe from his mouth. Come into the parlor. You were made free of it long ago, you know, and the other two ain't strangers. Stop till I shut the door of the shop. Ah, how it shrieks. There ain't such a rusty bit of metal in the place as its own hinges, I believe. And I'm sure there's no such old bones here as mine. <laughs> we're all suitable to our calling. We're all well matched. Come to the parlor, come to the parlor. The parlor was the space behind the screen of rags. The old man raked the fire together with an old stair rod and having trimmed his smoky lamp, for it was night, with the stem of his pipe, he put it in his mouth. While he did this, the woman who had already spoken threw her bundle on the floor and sat down in a flaunting manner on a stool, crossing her elbows on her knees and looking with bold defiance at the other two. What odds then? What odds, Miss Dilber, said the woman. Every person has a right to take care of themselves. He always did. That's true indeed, said the laundress, no man more so. Why then don't stand staring as if you were afraid of the woman? Who's the wiser? We're not going to pick holes in each other's coats, I suppose. No, indeed, says Miss Dilber and the man together. We should hope not. Very well, then, cried the woman. That's enough. Who's the worst for the loss of a few things like these? Not a dead man, I suppose. No, indeed, said Miss Dilber, laughing. If he wanted to keep him after he was dead, a wicked old screw, pursued the woman. Why wasn't he natural in his lifetime? If he had been, he'd have had somebody to look after when he was struck with death instead of lying gasping out his last there alone by himself. That's the truest word that was ever spoken, said Ms. Dilbert, to judgment on him. I wish it was a little heavier one, replied the woman, and it should have been, you may depend on it. If I could have laid my hands on anything else, open that bundle, old Joe, and let me know what the value of it is. Speak out plain. I'm not afraid to be the first, nor afraid for them to see it. We knew pretty well that we were helping ourselves before we met here, I believe so. It's no sin. Open the bundle, Joe. But the gallantry of her friends would not allow this, and the man in the faded black, mounting the breach first, produced his plunder. It was not extensive. A seal or two, a pencil case, a pair of sleeve buttons, and a brooch of no great value were all. They were severely... Um, they were severally examined and appraised by old Joe, who chalked the sums he was disposed to give for each upon the wall and added them up to a total where he found there was nothing more to come. 
That's your account, said Joe. And what I wouldn't give another sixpence if it was be boiled for not doing it. Who's next? Ms. Dilbert was next. Sheets and towels, a little wearing apparel, two old-fashioned silver teaspoons, a pair of sugar tongs, and a few boots. Her account was stated on the wall in the same manner. I always gives too much to ladies. It's a weakness of mine, and that's the way I ruin myself, said old Joe. That's your account. If you ask me for another penny and make it an open question, I'll repent of being so liberal and knock off half a crown. And now undo my bundle, Joe, said the first woman. Joe went down on his knees for the greater convenience of opening it and having unfastened a great many knots, dragged out large and heavy roll of some dark stuff. What do you call this, said Joe? Bed curtains? Ah, returned the woman laughing and leaning forward on her crossed arms. Bed curtains. You don't mean to say you took them down, rings and all with him lying there, said Joe. Yes, I do, replied the woman. Why not? You were born to make your fortune, said Joe, and you'll certainly do it. I certainly shan't hold my hand when I get anything in it by reaching it out for the sake of such a man as he was. I promise you, Joe, returned the woman coolly. Don't drop the oil upon the blankets now. His blankets, asked Joe. Who else do you think, replied the woman. He isn't likely to take cold without him, I dare say. Hope he didn't die of anything catching, eh, said the old Joe, stopping in his work and looking up. Don't you be afraid of that, returned the old woman. I ain't so fond of his company that I'd loiter about him for such things if he did. Ugh, you may look through that shirt till your eyes ache, but you won't find a hole in it, nor a threadbare place. It's the best he had, and a fine one, too. They'd have wasted it if it hadn't been for me. What do you call wasting of it, asked old Joe. Putting it on to be buried, to be sure, replied the old one with a laugh. Somebody was fool enough to do it, but I took it off again. If calico ain't good enough for such a purpose, it ain't good enough for anything. It's quite as becoming to the body. He can't look uglier than he did in that one. <laughs> um, I laugh with a sense of irony because a couple of things occur to me that are actually not in the script. A couple of things occur to me. Um, in my time, I have buried a few people who were relatives of mine. And I've also seen a couple of people be buried who were relatives of other people. And one of the things that cuts through all of those experiences is the dumpster that winds up outside of their house. And we live in a very materialistic world, uh, materialistic Western world. And at the end of the day, the house that you build a life in and the things that you acquired, many of them, not to be a downer here on Christmas, will end on a high note, but many of them wind up in a dumpster right outside your house. Now, I don't know what Tom's experience has been with this, but it has always struck me as a thing that is quite an example um, and stands as parallel to what we just read in that clip there, that piece of the book. They were fighting over, or not fighting over, they were trying to make money off of the last pieces of Ebenezer Scrooge. Rather than putting it into a dumpster, they were taking it to a pawn shop, figuring out what it was worth, which was less than nothing, and then taking what they could take as Ebenezer was loaded, lowered into the cold, cold ground. Um, this is an example of the Marxist critique of capitalism taken to its logical end. 
all the way to the end of life. Um, a friend of mine used to quip in college that communism only works in one place, and that's in heaven where they don't need it. <laughs> and maybe he was correct. But here on earth, where we all are still living, who's going to watch out for your stuff becomes a huge issue towards the end of your life. And it's really going to be interesting. We talk about our own time. We just kind of came through that in, in, our, in our last little segment there where we talked about, could this book have been written now? I'm very curious to see who's going to get scrubbed off the internet as we all wander towards our 80s and 90s who uh, came up under this thing. Or are we just going to want to be memorialized? More internet junk that you probably put in a dumpster. Because after we're gone... And I'll speak for myself on this one. I do have it written into my will that I be removed from the internet. I don't want to be around. I'm here and then I'm gone. Uh, kind of like Ferris Bueller at the end of Ferris Bueller's day off. Yeah. Show's over. Go home. Go home. Still here. <laughs> Why are you hanging around? Get out. <laughs> There's no more show here. I'm not here anymore. I actually, the essence of I, me isn't even here anymore. And we get this in A Christmas Carol. We get this in this piece. Go ahead. It's so funny you say that because there are, um, there's ways that you can set <clears> your <throat> social media, like get, like there's a, on, upon death, my, the control goes to so-and-so. Like yes. there's ways to do that. I, I found that fascinating and I never really gave it any thought until you just literally just said that. <laughs> I was like, do, do, I really, do I really want to be available after death? Like on social media and stuff like that. And is anybody going to look for you? Yeah, that's bizarre. beyond your beyond your family, maybe. Um, pardon me. <clears throat> beyond your family, maybe. I mean, your family, intimate people who actually cared about you in your life. Are the six hundred of your best friends on Facebook going to look for you? Yeah, I. You know, unless you're one of those people that who's uh, like a Tony Robbins or something like that, right? Where yeah, maybe you're, you're in your, your, you know, some of your, some of your lectures or lessons or whatever should stay forever or what, I, I don't know. And I'm just picking somebody who, sure. to your point earlier, who everybody would know, right? right. Everybody in the world knows who Tony Robbins is. Whether you like him or not, or don't like him or not, that doesn't matter. But to your point, me, lonely, old, small, peon, me, like, like who the hell is going to care if I go? Like, <laughs> Right. Like, <laughs> well, and to, and then the other dynamic here is to make other people responsible for your the detritus you leave across the internet from everything that you've done after you're gone. At best, I can see it as a burden to others who yeah. never asked for it and who don't care. And at worst, and that's at best, at worst, I see it. <sighs> I see it being used by people with less than honorable intentions to market things to people that they don't need. And I don't want to have my face showing up in the background of some marketing campaign 500 years from now to sell soap. Yeah. Sorry. Nope. I mean, Google, Google doesn't, <laughs> Google doesn't get the final vote. <laughs> no, again, like I said, I, I literally gave it not one single thought until, until, you just said that. This is, and, and you read that. Now it's going to plague me, Hey, Now it's going to plague me. <laughs> I'm going I'm to stay up at night now. I'm going to be thinking about this for the next 18 days. Like, <laughs> it's, just, it's the little things. It's, yeah, it's exactly. the little things I do. It's the little things. 
Well, I mean, how do we, well, let me return to the corner here anyway. How do we, how do we stay on the path? How do we, how do we as leaders, I mean, we know the big lesson from the Christmas Carol is leaders can change, right? You can turn that corner, right? Um, you can come to something different, right? How do leaders stay on the path with this tiny little book? I think, I think one of the things that, for me anyway, I think one of the things that, that it, it's, that you, you, you have to care. Right. Like that's that's the, the under the other underlying message here. Right. Right. There has to be a sense and sensibility of your humanity when it comes to interacting with other people, regardless of what position you hold in the company, yeah. whether it's a mid-level manager, whether it's a VP, whether it's a CE, you know, the C-level, you have to you. That, that's like that's like the old adage of like that powerful CEO of the Fortune 100 company that knows the name of the janitor when he walks in the building. Mm-hmm. That kind of stuff, as much as you don't think so or you may not think so, matters. Like that 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 human connection where that guy and I worked for a guy by the way. He was and he was he was a, a senior level VP and I remember walking in the door one day to the office and I, I was a, I was a sales manager for him and he was a, he was the, the senior VP of sales and marketing in a mm-hmm. fortune 100 company. Yeah. I remember walking in the door one day and he had the vacuum in his hand and he was vacuuming the office. Mm-hmm. And I walked in and I said, Jim, what are you, what are you doing? He goes, the, the, the guy who normally does this, he, he's not feeling well. He's in the bathroom. I think he, he might actually be throwing up. And I went, okay, so the floor doesn't get vacuumed today. No big deal. I feel I, I, yeah, I too, I too felt bad that he didn't feel well, but I didn't have the forethought that I'm going to help this guy with his job because I don't want him feeling like he might get fired. I don't even want him thinking about the fact that if he doesn't do his job, he gets fired. And I was like, whoa, that was a, that was a big thing for me to see yeah. like, that, that somebody of that stature, in my opinion of that stature at that time, because sure. now I don't really think that much about a senior VP of sales and marketing. Um, but whatever, anyway, that's another, that's a story for different times. <laughs> that's a different, that's a different podcast episode. <laughs> exactly. But, but at that moment in my life, yeah. I had thoughts of grandeur of that role. I had, I had a certain vision of what that role and what I thought that they felt about people underneath them. And he changed it with a, that just that one interaction. Yeah. And I went, God, this guy actually gives to, you know, mm-hmm. a rat's patoot about this guy. Like he this guy. really cares about this guy as a person and their titles in the company didn't matter to him. Yeah. And I was like, so that's kind of like, you know, the, again, some of the underlying stuff that I take out of this is that it's, it's about, it's about, and it's also about not judging their status, right? It's like, mm-hmm. so it's about caring them as an individual person and not caring about them based on what they do or say or can or do or can or say for you. Mm-hmm. Like, that that role in life is just being a person. Being a person. So, yeah. You know, I, it's I think it's there too. I think I think and, and and I think a question about like how can leaders maintain this throughout the course of a year? Because people have this weird tendency to shift their mindset come the holiday season, right? And all of a sudden, yeah. it's like it's like you know it's like uh, you know November November fifteenth comes, and all of a sudden it's all about family and friends, and everyone's 
kumbaya, blah, blah, blah. And where does this go the rest of the year? Which, right. by the way, and we can definitely talk about this on another podcast because I have my own, like, why do we have Black History Month? It should be Black History 12 months a year. Why do we have a Native American Heritage Month? It should be Native American Heritage all year round. Like, oh, boy. <laughs> we're we're going to talk about that next year. <laughs> right, but, but when we isolate the, when we isolate these things, then yeah. we only draw focus on them for a short period of time, and it's unnecessary, right? Yeah. Same rule applies here. November 15th comes, and it's all about family and friends and holidays and gatherings and how wonderful life is. But we don't think about it the rest of the year, and we have to. We have to. It's it's the it's the you know it's the after effect of the holidays and the five months of bills. You know that stupid song, right? Well, your employees still have those five months of bills. Like you're, yeah. you may not because you have a C level position and you just you know you spend whatever you want to spend and it doesn't impact your budget because you're part of the one percent. Whatever, fine. I'm happy for you, but that's not the reality for that. For if you're that Fortune 100 CEO, that's not the reality for 90% of your employees. Mm -hmm. So coming to work on January 1st or 2nd or 3rd or whatever, when the holidays are all done and over with, and now you're starting to bury bury them in deep with KPIs and goals for the next year and make, mm -hmm. making sure that we're hitting these numbers and make, you know, you just switch that whole dynamic and you have the ability to not do that. Yeah. You have the ability to look at this and go, I want you to have goals and, and, you know, and, and KPIs for next year, but I want them presented in a way that makes you think that I give a rat's ass about you, right? Yeah. Like, so there, you have, you have control over that. So why not do it? I think it's very simple. I really do. I think being able to take that quote unquote Christmas spirit and measure it all year round is simple. It's about humanity and making sure that they, they they know that you see them as a person they are not just a number to you they're not just driven metrics they are they are a human being that matters to you as a human being when you ask somebody how their day is and they answer you and you're already thinking about something else while they're answering you that's a problem stay in the moment when they when they, when you when i ask i i I've, I've had hundreds thousands of people work for me and when i ask a person How's, how's it going? How's everything going? And they go, oh my God, my dad's in the hospital. Blah, blah. My mind is not checked out and thinking, all right, this person is just going to blubber on for the next three minutes and I can move on say, I'm really sorry to hear that and move on. Or I hope they get better and move on. No, you sit there and go, my, do you need to be here today? Do you need the day off? It, would it be, would it benefit you to go home and deal with this? It, does your father need you at the hospital with him? Is that the, there's so much humanity that can come out of your mouth right in that moment. And you 100% change the dynamics of how that person thinks of you. And then maybe the arc of morality does move up into the right. Yeah. I've never had a person work for me. I've fired people, Hassan, that would still give me good reviews. <laughs> 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 because even in firing them, I, I care about them as a person. It's not about, it's not about you as a person. It's about your performance. Maybe performance. this job is not the right job for you, but yeah. God, God damn it. I will be the first person to say, if it, I'll help you find one that is right for you. Mm -hmm. If you mm -hmm. find one that is right for you and you need somebody to, to stand up for you and say, this person is a good person, I will do it. I don't yep. care if I fired you because you couldn't perform. Yep. You know, like that's it. Just because, just because one plus one equals two does not mean that we throw out the threes. Right. <laughs> right? Well, and I think, I think you're, I think you're hitting on something that is 
And I do think it is it, it is meaningful. <clears throat> I, I do think that it is meaningful that Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's all occur at pretty much this. I think that's that's significant. I do not think that that is insignificant. I think that's significant. But I think it's significant for the reasons you're talking about. And I would add to that that gratitude, being awed, and being renewed are something that should happen, are things that should happen at every point in time during the year. Well, and if, if you think of it from a holiday perspective, right, the next holiday on the calendar that brings up any of those emotions or thought processes is Easter. Right. So what did we do? We invented one to put in the middle. Right. <laughs> Valentine's Day. We were like, we can't go this far without having right. this conversation. Right. So let's, let's invent one in there. Let's like, put that one in there. That's what we did, right? Like, so, so we tried We tried to use holidays to do that. And we, we just kept adding them to the calendar to, to try to make this a continuation of that, of that yeah. feeling. And it didn't work. It didn't, it didn't work. work. Quite, quite yeah, well. Sweetest Day is also in there somewhere. But that's in October, I think. Something like right. that. I don't know. Um, no, I think you're correct. I think you're, you're on to something. And I think that examining the impact that we have on each other at an individual and at a corporate level is the larger message of the Christmas Carol. It's also um, fundamentally, I think what you're talking about in a real way is the, is part of the begins the part of the steps out of this, this grinding nihilism that we are under um, that irks me and, 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 and creates the meaning crisis and, and, and has undergirded some of the, many of the conversations I've had this year on the podcast with people. We've got to get back to meaning. <laughs> and if we have to leverage Christmas to do that, fine. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. If we have to leverage Valentine's Day to do that, I'm fine with that. If we have to leverage a month to do that, I'm fine with that. Now, here's where I'm not fine with it. I'm not fine in that leveraging being used for venal or avaristic purposes to market stuff. That's where I'm not fine with that. Yeah, I get yeah. off the train there. I'm not fine with it when we're having flat conversations that are ideologically driven and we have no room for nuance. I'm not on board with that at all. And as leaders, it's our responsibility to figure out what we're on board with and what we're not on board with and be very clear about where the, where the separation is between those two things and fight like hell for meaning. Um, fight like hell for it. And when you come to the end of a year, and, and by the way, this does matter because this is a cycle, right? None of us will ever live in 2022 again. Like right. it's over, it's done. <laughs> and none of us yet have lived in 2023. Um, you know, I published a shorts episode. Um, and as of the recording of this podcast, that will be yesterday. So I published a shorts episode yesterday. So you can go listen to that. That um, basically said, you know, or I basically put out the point that think of all the things that didn't happen this year that we were all screaming about that we thought were going to happen. You know, nuclear war didn't happen this year. Uh, we all didn't burn off the planet in an apocalyptic ecological nightmare. We're all still here. Plan didn't burn up. Um, an asteroid didn't hit the planet this year. Well, there were several asteroids that came really close. 
Um, and for those of us who are maybe more religious minded, Jesus didn't return. This long anticipated return to 2022 years. Not, not this year. <laughs> so not being flippant. I'm saying the things didn't happen. Yeah. What did happen? What did happen this year was that leaders, public and private, small and large, with position and status to Tom's point, and those without, made decisions to move the, the rock forward. Um, there were some leaders that made the decision to move the rock backward or try to anyway. But I believe in the aggregate of the small people. I believe in the, the power of that 80%. Not the power of the 80% in sort of a Marxist revolutionary kind of way. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about accountability factor. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Exactly. It is that accountability factor. It's also it's also that 80% who get up every day and do listen to their employees and do huh, vacuum the floor when it needs to be vacuumed so somebody doesn't lose their job. Um, they do go the extra mile and deliver the food when someone needs to have it delivered. And they are unsung and untalked about and usually not thanked. And so on this podcast, the last new one of this year of 2022, I would like to thank those leaders, um, thank them for their time and for the effort that they put in and for all of the work that they have done during this year. It is not something that is ignored or not seen. And during this holiday season, I wanna recommend that you pull the folks close to you who will remember you at the end of the day and honor those people as much as they have honored you. And enjoy a Christmas Carol and enjoy your holiday season. It doesn't always have to be downer. Enjoy your holiday season. Have fun. Sure. The eggnog and the gifts and the giving, the traveling, the eating is the really big thing. Watch your eating. Watch your, watch your eating. Oh, no, don't watch that. Eat is my, I, 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 this is, this is what I live for. This is the part that I live for. <laughs> Gluttony is a sin. So let's be careful about that. Gluttony is when you miss the mark. <laughs> Just let's be careful about that. <laughs> but go out and enjoy yourselves, right? Enjoy your family and enjoy the small times and the small things. And you know what? We'll see you on the other side. Good Lord willing, as my grandma would have said, in the creek, don't rise. <laughs> right. In uh, in 2023, I want to thank Tom for coming on the Leadership Lessons for the Great Books podcast. Always great to have you. Always fun to be here. And with that, I'm out. Thank you for listening and subscribing to the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast. If you're listening to this on any of the major podcast players like iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify please go ahead and leave us a five-star review and uh, write a little bit in there. Uh, a couple of sentences is good enough. That actually helps us game those algorithms that I was just maybe addressing. And, of course, it helps us grow the show. Tell all your family, tell all your friends, and tell the leaders in your life that you know that need to be listening to this show that this show exists. By the way, if you want to get started on the leadership path yourself, or you know some people who need to go on the leadership path, uh, HSCT Publishing, the home company of Leadership Toolbox and Leadership Lessons from the Great Books Podcast, can help you and your team do that. So check out our training webinars, coaching services, and more at leadershiptoolbox.us. We are remote, we're live, we're in person, we're on video, 
and we've got leadership development solutions for your civic group, nonprofit staff, public sector staff, or even your private sector leaders. And of course, you're going to want to check out our video-based subscription service at leadingkeys.com. That's leadingkeys.com for leadership development on demand. You don't like videos, you don't like training, but you really like the podcast? Well, I would also recommend reading a book. Matter of fact, I'd recommend reading my most recent book, 12 Rules for Leaders, The Foundation of Intentional Leadership. You can get that in paperback, hardcover, or as an ebook on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, Ingram Spark, and any other place that you order books online. Finally, of course, we're on YouTube just like everybody else is. We'd love to have you help us grow the YouTube channel, so like and subscribe to the video version of this podcast on the HSCT Publishing channel on YouTube. Just search for HSCT Publishing, or you can search for Leadership Toolbox and hit the subscribe button. Subscribing helps us grow the show, as it does with the audio, just is the same with the video. All right, that's it for me.